In this last chapter of Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, Paul will wrap things up by first addressing one final topic that they were inquiring about. And then he closes it up by informing the church of his personal travel plans, as well as the plans for his associates in the ministry. As you'll see, as we go through this, this last chapter, many of the things that Paul writes here were for a time in a place that has faded into the pages of history. Nevertheless, there are various principles within this chapter that are still applicable to this church and to each and every one of us today. So I hope that this morning's message will help show you how you can practically apply these principles of our love, of your love, will be displayed. So let's pray and ask, and ask our Father in Heaven to speak to us this morning through His Word. Lord Heavenly Father, um, creator of this universe, maker of heaven and earth, we come before you now and ask that you speak to us through your word, Lord, that you've given us, that you've blessed us with. Lord, show us and reveal to us the deep truths that you want to speak to us about as a church and individually. Lord, let us all honor you right now with our attention, with our hearts, and with our minds. <clears throat> Fill us with your Holy Spirit so that we may apply what, we've, what we read and what we learn so that our lives may be changed and so that we'll be able to love you deeper and love one another in a deep in a, in a deeper way too lord be with us now speak to us as we sit at your feet pray this in jesus name amen all right so first corinthians chapter 16 first corinthians chapter 16 starting in verse 1 now about the collection for the saints. Do the same as I instructed the Galatian churches. On the first day of the week, each of you is to set aside or set something aside and save in keeping with how he is prospering so that no collection will need to be made when I come. When I arrive, I will send, I will send with letters those you recommend to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it is suitable for me to go as well, they will travel with me. Back in verse 58 of our last chapter, Paul concluded the discussion of the resurrection by encouraging the Corinthians to always be excelling in the Lord's work. Now, part of that work, as we just read, included a collection for believers who were in financial need. So Paul begins this chapter by responding to a question that the Corinthians had about how they were to organize the collection for the poor saints in Jerusalem. Now, we're not specifically told the exact cause of their poverty, but what we do know was that many of the Christians there at that time were persecuted and ostracized 
for their faith. Many of them probably lost their jobs in countless ways and were subjected to economic pressures from, fa from family members who wanted absolutely nothing to do with them. They were pretty much on their own. And being on their own and in a persecuted, in a place where they were persecuting Christians, that's a really hard place to be, to make money, to earn a living, to make a living. Just imagine that for us today, how, would that, how that would be like. So Paul hoped that when he came to Corinth, the Christians there would have already made a collection for those brothers and sisters who were in Jerusalem. Now, before I continue to break down the rest of uh, our passage, I want to mention some important things about verse 1. Now, we make it a point during our announcements to mention um, that wooden box that's back there, that that wooden box is for your tithes and your special offerings. These special offerings, um, the special offerings given would be synonymous to what Paul is saying here about a collection for the saints. See, the ancient Greek word for collection is logia or logia, which means an extra collection, one that is not compulsory and directed by the heart. So if the Lord leads you to give, and, to give above and beyond your regular church tithes, then it would be considered a special offering. Now this could be here at this church, and if that's the case, if you do have a special offering, we have envelopes back there, and just make a note in the bottom of the envelope where you want that special offering to go. Or it could be at a parachurch organization or another Christian organization. It could be to um, the Red Cross. Um, it could be to a number of organizations that are out there that help provide relief for those who are in need. So. Now, with that being said, there are some who think that because Christians are commanded to help the poor, especially Christians in need, that this is more important than supporting ministry, ministers of the gospel. But in 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul speaks of the responsibility of the church to honor widows and to consider ministers of the gospel worthy of double honor. So while Christians do have a responsibility to help the poor, it doesn't come before the responsibility to support ministers of the gospel. Now, because I work, I, I don't take a single tithe or a single dime from the tithes that you give here. Instead, a portion of your tithes go directly to the needs of this church. A larger portion is put into savings so that one day we'll be able to afford having our own location. That's one of the plans, one of the goals right now is to be able to save enough money so that we can um, have our own separate locational, separate building. Um, I have an amount in my head and we're almost there, um, but you know, it's you know, little by little, you know, we're getting there and that's, that's okay. You know, we're just trusting the Lord and you know, he's gonna provide and he, you know, he's gonna open the doors for the right place and right location and at the right time. But that's a big portion of your tithes um, go there. 
into a savings. Now when it comes to giving to the poor, I want you to understand that we use these general principles from the, from the Bible. So because benevolence distribution has the potential to cause problems and division, Acts chapter 6, 1 through 7, make it clear that it's the job of the church leaders to prevent such problems by their wise counsel, by their wise and spirit-led counsel. Also, according to 1 Timothy chapter 3, or chapter 5, verse 3, and James chapter 1, verse 27, this church has an obligation to discern who the truly needy are and to help them. If one, also, another point is, if one cannot work to support himself, if one, I'm sorry, if one can work to support himself, he is not truly needed and must provide for his own needs. If one can be supported by their family, he's not truly needy and should not be supported by the church. Those who are supported by the church must make some return to the church body. Now, it is right for the church also to examine the moral conduct before giving support. And finally, the support of the church should be for the most basic necessities of living. Now, each one of those points I just made, I, have, I do have um, biblical verses that um, you can refer to that, and I can mean, if you need those, I can give it to you afterwards. But those are the main basic principles, the general principles that we want to use when it comes to giving benevolence to anybody within, or within, yeah, to anyone here in the church. The overall point to all, to all this is that those of us who lead this church have a moral and biblical obligation to be wise about how your tithes are distributed. So if the Lord puts it in your heart to financially help anyone here, and you want to do it anonymously, and you want or remain anonymous, just put you know, that amount or whatever it is inside that box, put that person's name in there, and we'll make sure that it gets to that person. But um, it's, it's all up to you. It's all should come from the heart. But again, we want to be wise when it comes to the finances here. You know, and we definitely want to have some accountability here. And uh, that's what the goal is, uh, the idea behind this is. Well, as we continue, it appears that Paul had already given orders to the churches of, in Galatia in connection with this very matter. So what he does in verse 2 is instruct the Corinthians to respond in the same manner that the Galatian saints had been exhorted to do. First of all, the laying, uh, the, the laying by of funds was to be done on the first day of the week. Here we have a very strong indication that early Christians no longer regarded, regarded the Sabbath or the seventh day as an obligatory observance. Since the Lord had risen on the first day of the week, on the day of, on the day of Pentecost, that's when the disciples began to gather and have church. Secondly, he tells them that the collection must come from each of you. It didn't matter if they were rich, poor, slave, or free. 
all were to have a part in the sacrifice of giving of their possessions. Thirdly, the collection was to come from an amount each of them had privately budgeted and had already prepared. It wasn't to be done on the spot or coming from an emergency fund. This was to be a gift set aside from one's budget and devoted to a special use as the occasion demanded. And fourthly, each of them was to give proportionately. In other words, based upon what one earned. Believers who have more should give more. Now it's important to also add here that Paul is suggesting that this be a private decision-making process and doesn't, he doesn't mandate that a 10% tithe be given. However, the expression, how he is prospering, does indicate that the more money a believer makes, the more, the more they ought to give. Now verse 2 ends by telling us that Paul wanted the collection to be completed before he arrived so that he wouldn't feel manipulated, so that any, no one would feel manipulated to give. The last thing he wanted to do was to arrive in Corinth and feel as though he was coercing believers for money, like we see some of the preachers today. Whatever they had already decided, uh, whatever they had already decided to give, he wanted them to do it anonymously, freely, and from the heart as each heart heard from God. Their willingness to give would be a true evidence of their, would be the true, uh, yeah, I'm sorry, would be true evidence of their love for others. Now, although this was a special missionary, uh, a special missionary offering, as Christians here, there are some basic principles that we can learn from Paul's instructions. Principle number one, giving should be an act of worship. When Paul received the gifts from the Philippian church, he said this in Philippians 4.18, they are a sweet smelling sacrifice that is acceptable and pleasing to God. It's tragic when church members give only as a duty and forget that our offerings are to be special or spiritual sacrifices presented to the Lord. Principle number two, giving should be a private, personal matter. No one should tell you what to give or how much you ought to give. You should never feel coerced to hand money over, nor should you ever feel bad about giving your money to a church or another Christian organization. 2 Corinthians 9.7 says, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So whatever you decide to give should be a personal matter between you and God. You see, he sees what you give, and he knows the heart behind it. So whether it's one dollar, a thousand dollars, a million dollars, you know, it's you should give it with a cheerful heart, 
and just know that the God is watching you. You don't have to let the whole world know. You know, He's watching you. He knows, and He knows the heart behind it. So again, whether it is that one dollar and you feel bad about giving up that dollar, you know, He knows. He knows what's, He knows, you know, what's going on in there. So make sure again that you're doing it. That you're giving with the right heart. Principle number three, and I mentioned this a little bit earlier, giving is to be proportionate. Give according to your ability to give. Now, 10% is a good biblical rule, but don't allow percentages to be the absolute determining factor on how much you ought to give. Paul made it clear in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 through 9 that Christian giving is the overflow of the grace of God in our lives and not the result of promotion or pressure. An open heart cannot maintain a closed hand. If you and I, if we appreciate the grace of God extended to us, we will want to express that grace by sharing with others. This is the evidence of our true love for others. You see, God would rather have all your heart than all your money. Well, Paul then provides a valuable insight into the care, into the care that should be taken with funds that are gathered in a Christian assembly in verses 3, three and 4. It's notice, noticeable first that the funds were not to be entrusted to any one person. Even Paul himself was not to be the sole recipient. He did this to show his concern for financial integrity and accountability. Secondly, we notice that the, arrange, that the arrangements as to who would carry the money were not made arbitrar arbitrarily by Paul. The decision was made by the local church. Once they had selected the messengers, Paul would personally go with these couriers if it seemed advisable and if the circumstances permitted. So that's what he's essentially saying here with those first four verses. Now, um, let's continue reading from where we left off. Let's pick up in verse 5. I will come to you after I pass through Macedonia, for I will be traveling through Macedonia, and perhaps I will, be, I will remain with you or even spend a winter so that you may send me on my way wherever I go. I don't want to see you now just in passing since I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord allows. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost because a wide door for effective ministry is open for me. Yet many oppose me. If Timothy comes, see that he has nothing to fear while with you because he is doing the Lord's work just as I am. So let no one look down on him. Send him on his way in peace so that he can come to me because I am expecting him with the brothers. Now about our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to come to you with the brothers, but he was not at all willing to come now. However, he will come when he has an opportunity. Now that the main body of Paul's letter has ended, Paul here begins to conclude with some personal remarks. Verses 5 through 9 tell us, that, tell us his plans 
were to go through Macedonia to Corinth, and this was to be his third missionary journey, and possibly to spend the winter there. He then expected them to provide supplies for his journey when he left them. In the meantime, he intended to stay in Ephesus until May, or that is the Jewish feast of Pentecost, because of the favorable response to the gospel in that city. Paul realized that there was a golden opportunity for serving Christ at that time at Ephesus. At the same time, he realized that there were, there were many adversaries there as well. What an unchanging picture this verse gives us about Christian service. On one hand, there are fields white and ready to be harvested. On the other hand, however, there is a restless enemy seeking to obstruct, divide, and oppose what we do for the Lord every in every conceivable way. So that way we, and if that's the case, we have to make sure that we know what the Lord's will for us is. And we always seek the Lord because wherever we go, there's going to be adversaries there not wanting you to be there at all. But if that's where, the, where, that's where God wants you, we must listen to Him. We must listen to the Lord. And if we look to Him and get our strength from Him, He will give us the victory. He will make sure that these en enemy forces won't prevail. Paul then adds a word concerning Timothy. If this devoted young servant of the Lord came to Corinth, they should receive him with nothing to fear. Now perhaps this means that Timothy was naturally a timid, had a, or was naturally of a timid disposition, and that they should not do anything to intensify that tendency. Perhaps, on the other hand, it means that he should be able to come to them without any fear of being accepted as a servant of the Lord. Now more than likely, this is the proper meaning. As Paul words indicate, he is doing the Lord's work just as I am. And because of Timothy's faithful service for Christ, no one should look down on him. Instead, an earnest effort should be made to send him on his way in peace that he might return to Paul in due time. See, Paul was looking forward to a reunion with Timothy and with the rest of the brothers. After mentioning Timothy in verse 11, Paul now mentions Apollos in verse 12, who he considered another dear brother. He tells, he says there that Apostle, sorry, Apollos didn't feel that this was God's will for him at the time, but he indicated that he would go to Corinth when he had the opportunity. Now verse 12 is valuable to us in showing us the loving spirit that prevailed among the servants of the Lord. Someone has called it a beautiful picture of unjealous love and respect. It also shows us the liberty that prevailed for each servant of the Lord to be guided by the Lord without dictation from another source. 
You see, Paul didn't sit as the commanding officer over Apollos. And he didn't tell him what he needed to do. What he, he didn't command him, you know what, you need to come to Corinth right now. He left it up to Paul. Paul didn't feel, didn't feel he should go to Corinth at that time. And Paul had to concur with his decision. He left it up to him. When it comes to serving in ministry, I will be more than willing to offer my advice and suggestion. However, if you've already made up your mind on what you will or won't do, it's not my place to dissuade you. You know why? Because I'm, I trust that you are, you are mature enough now to have received confirmation from the Lord that that decision you made is the right one. Sadly, I've heard of churches that have tried to exercise full-on control of a person's life, including who they should marry and what kind of job they should have, where they should live, how much money they should have. They have access to their bank accounts. No, it shouldn't be that way. Not at all. No one should have exercise complete control over another person. No one but, but the Lord, right? In this connection, Ironsides, Ironside commented, I would not like to tear this chapter out of my Bible. It helps me to understand God's way of guiding His servants in their ministry for Him. Now, in this next section we're about to read, he'll begin, we'll begin to see the evidence of Paul's true love for the Corinthian church. So let's go back and pick up in verse 13. First Corinthians chapter 15, verse 13. Be alert, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong, do everything in love. Brothers and sisters, you know the household of Stephanus. They are the first fruits, first fruits of Achaia and have devoted themselves to serving the saints. I urge you also to submit to such people and to everyone who works and labors with them. I am delighted to have Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus present because these men have made up for your absence for they have refreshed my spirit and yours therefore recognize such people Paul begins to end this letter by encouraging them in verses 13 through four, 13 and 14 they are to be alert to stand firm in the faith to be courageous and to be strong. These four parallel commands employ military metaphors, metaphors to encourage resoluteness in the faith. What he's also implying here is that they be adults, that is put away immaturity that has led to so many of your problems and grow up in the Lord. Now, these two verses are more so applicable to, to Christian men 
to men in the church. So for us men who are in the faith, this is a call to be courageous, to be to courageous manliness in an hour where mature leadership is needed. Now balancing these commands to be strong is the, is the call to love in verse 14. As with Paul's discussion of spiritual gifts in chapters 12 through 14, all Christian activity must take place in a sphere of putting others above self. Again, for us men, manliness, manliness must be balanced with love or else leadership will become dictatorship. And this is true whether it's in the home, at work, and in ministry. Carl Sandburg, when addressing the United States Congress, said that Abraham Lincoln was a man of velvet steel. That's a good image for Christians to borrow. For true manliness does not exclude tenderness. Now, in verses 15 through 18, Paul mentions three men who brought the questions of the Corinthian Christians to Paul. Stephanus, Fortunatus, and I, I had the name memorized in my head earlier and I, I completely forgot, but Achaicus, who were their earliest converts or the first fruits in Achaia. As he sends them back with this letter, he asks that they be received as devoted servants of the Lord. Now the household of Stephanus had been mentioned back in chapter 1 verse 16 and there Paul states that he had baptized that household. Fortunatus and Achaicus were likely two household slaves of Stephanus who accompanied him on his visit to Paul. He then points out that they, when they visited Paul it made up for what the Corinthians should have done but didn't do and commends them for their high character and their gifts for ministry. Because of this, Paul encourages the church to honor this very special family and to submit to their spiritual leadership. Well now, let's read the last five verses of Paul's final greeting. Verse 19, the churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla send you greetings warmly in the Lord, along with the church that meets in their home. All the brothers and sisters send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. This greeting is in my own hand, Paul. If anyone does not love the Lord, a curse be on him. Our Lord come. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you, be with all of you in Christ Jesus. In verses 19 through 20, Paul conveys his final greeting to the Corinthian church from four groups of fellow believers. The first group were from the various churches in Asia Minor 
almost certainly including Coloss, Ephesus, and possibly some of the other seven churches mentioned or established in the vicinity. The second group, Paul's good friends Aquila and Priscilla, co-workers with him in Corinth. Now you could read about their story in Acts, in the book of Acts. Chapter 18 um, has uh, a good story about them. But there were co-workers with him in Corinth and later partners with him in the ministry in Ephesus. The third group, the specific house that met in their home. And four, the fourth group, Paul's other immediate companions in the ministry. Thereafter, he instructs them to greet one another with a holy kiss. The holy kiss was probably borrowed from a common ancient practice, both sacred and secular, Jewish and Gentile. Customarily, men greeted other men and women and men greeted other men and women greeted other women by embracing each other and kissing one another in the cheek. Now some may probably ask, man, why don't we still practice that to this day? That would be great if all of us just started kissing each other on the cheek. Well, let me try to explain why and I hope this explanation is sufficient for you. A holy kiss means a greeting without shame or impurity. In our sex-obsessed American culture, everything, almost anything that you look at has been sexualized. There's, you know, perversion is, pre is prevalent in our society. The widespread use of a kiss as a mode of greeting among opposite sexes might present serious temptations and may lead to gross moral uh, failures. I mean, I'm not saying it will, but it may. Therefore, even though, for example, my intentions may not be bad, I'd rather avoid kissing my Christian sisters in the cheek than be seen as that pastor that's too friendly or be seen as flirtatious or be or just you know be looked at like you know especially you know by my family like hey what's really going on there no and and this is this also applies to i can also apply this to being alone with other females i mean i i do my best to try to prevent that i'd rather not just for integrity purposes i'd rather not be a alone with another woman. Not that, again, my intentions are bad, but it's just the outward view, you know. And as, and as females, hopefully you feel the same way. Because I respect our, cult our cultural norms that we, that we live in, I honestly prefer a firm handshake and a manly hug from a brother and a kiss on the cheek. Now ordinarily, we shouldn't allow cultural considerations to excuse us from strict adherence to the words of scripture. But in a case like this, where literal obedience might lead to sin or even the appearance of evil because of our local conditions, 
our cultural conditions, we are probably justified in substituting the handshake for the kiss. In verses 21 to 23, we have Paul's personal and concluding words. It appears that after verse 20, whoever was dictating this letter for Paul gave the pen over to him so that he might add a few words in his own writing. So with pen in hand, or whatever writing material he had, Paul makes these four final statements. If anyone does not love the Lord, a curse be on him. Paul stresses the importance of love, pronouncing a heavy curse on those who talk of commitment to Jesus, but not have no genuine love for him. A curse translates in the Greek word anathema. Those who don't love the Lord Jesus are condemned already, but their, doomed, their doom will be manifest at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. A Christian, though, is one who loves the Savior with all their soul, with all their heart, their soul, and their strength. This means he loves the Lord Jesus more than anything or anyone in this entire world. He then says, Oh Lord, excuse me, Oh Lord, come. Now, many of you guys probably know this, but in Aramaic, the word for Maranatha was, Oh Lord, come, which was used commonly by these early Christians. So if you ever wanted to know what Maranatha means, that's, that's what it means in Aramaic. Oh Lord, come. If a person loves Jesus Christ, they will also love his appearing. Paul says also, the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Grace was Paul's favorite theme. He loved to open and end his, let, end his letters on this exalted note. This benediction of grace was his own personal signature that he let readers know that this letter that he had just written was genuine and authentic. And in the ends, my love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Paul had been stern with the Corinthian believers, but he closed this letter by assuring them of his love. After all, Proverbs 27.6 says, The wounds of a friend are trustworthy. As you can see throughout this entire epistle, we have listened to the heartbeat of a devoted apostle of Christ. We have listened to him as he sought to edify, to comfort, to exhort, and admonish his children in the faith. There shouldn't be any doubt among the Corinthian Christians of his deep and profound love for them. And as we've studied this letter for the past few months, Paul has shared a great deal of spiritual wisdom with us as well. My prayers have always been, since we started this book, have always been that you receive it with meekness. And my hope has always been that, this, that you put the words his instructions, his 
edifications, everything that he's written here into practice to the glory of God. You know, how many times have we been those disobedient children that Paul writes about here in this letter? Where we exalted ourselves, where we put ourselves, make ourselves higher than God, or where, you know, we just want to do our own thing. So Paul says, hey, like a good father, I'm going to give you a spanking, but just come back. I love you. God loves you. If that's you, that's, I mean, all you got to do is just come back to the Lord, and He will accept you no matter how bad you've blown it. He loves you. We, we have a Father in heaven who will love us above and beyond any Father here on earth. Don't ever compare your fathers, your dads that you had here to who God is. He is kind of like them, but not. He's more better, more full of, he's, he's more grace, full of grace. And he just wants to embrace you and, and, and bless you. So, I hope this letter, you've learned a lot through this letter, that it, it's encouraged you and that it's brought some comfort. If you've missed anything, again, you can look, look them up on the website and, and, and look at some past teachings, but um, some good stuff here. I encourage you to go back and, and listen through some of them. So with that, let's, let's close with a word of prayer. Thank you, Lord, that um, you brought us here to this point to finish this letter to the Corinthian church. Lord, I pray that everyone that's been here to go through this study has learned a lot, has been changed, and that they've come to know you better. Lord, thank you for Paul for writing this letter and giving it to us. Lord, if there's anyone there, that anyone out there that's suffering or in doubt or hurting, comfort them, be with them, Lord. Encourage them so they may stand firm in the faith. They may be courageous and strong. Lord, we want to do your will. We want to be known as a church that is fully in love with you, that is, that knows you, that believes in your word, and that wants to do your will. Keep everyone here safe, Lord, in the palm of your hands. 
heal those who are sick, those who are hurting. Lord, we look forward to seeing you again. We do. Our hearts cry out, Maranatha. Bless us next time of fellowship, Lord. We love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.